The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. It is, it is good to be here in North Carolina. It's still a little chilly up in the People's Republic of Vermont. And uh, so it's nice to be down here in some warmer weather. Uh, I send you greetings from NETS and from Christ Memorial Church, uh, which is over the ministry of NETS. And it is truly an honor for me to be here. And why don't we look to the Lord in a word of prayer before we look to his word. Would you bow with me, please? Father, indeed, you are worthy of all praise. You who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. We thank you for the opportunity to come today and not only praise uh, our glorious God, but also to learn of him and to help us as we make progress in holiness. We commit this time to you. We ask that you would uh, give us uh, ears to hear, hearts to obey, and we commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you know that excellence in any endeavor requires confidence that one's effort will not be in vain. You have to have confidence that it'll work out well when you put forth effort. I mean, think of sports. You know, in my day when Michael Jordan or Larry Bird or today, Steph Curry, when they shoot, they actually believe they're going to make it. They know they're excellent shooters, and all three shot or currently shoot about 50%. One out of every two shots go in the basket. They let it fly with confidence. Now, if you're into music, you probably know that the great opera tenor, Luciano Pavarotti, was famous for the high C. And when he went after that high C, there was no tentativeness. He attacked it. He attacked that note with confidence. On a personal note, my wife is a good cook. I think she's a great cook. But she has what I would deem a rather dangerous practice. When we have guests over for dinner, she'll often try a brand new recipe. I would never do that if I was cooking. Of course, I would never cook. But you know, she's not worried. She's a good cook, so frankly, she's confident that the meal will turn out well. And invariably, it does. Well, how about you today? Capital Community Church. How confident would you say that you are regarding your Christian walk? On a scale from 1 to 10, with 10 being supremely confident, how would you rate your confidence that you can actually walk in newness of life, that you can actually walk in obedience to God's law? 
that God has done a work that enables you to walk according to the Spirit. Now, let me suggest to you this morning that true humility doesn't deny or depreciate what God has already done in salvation, but fully embraces the already of our salvation, and that this breeds a humble confidence that translates into a more successful pilgrimage toward holiness and ultimately toward heaven. Thus, to rightly understand who you already are in Christ today is to help you to more successfully attack both your sin and your adversary, the devil. So here's the question. What can boost our confidence in what God has already done, which will enable us to better mortify our sin in this time of our salvation? Well, let's begin by gaining some perspective on the problem of sin. The Westminster Larger Catechism, question number 24, asks this, what is sin? The answer, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God, given as a rule to, a reasonable, to the reasonable creature. I like 1 John 3, 4. It says sin is lawlessness. Sin is is lawlessness. But what law does sin transgress? Well, you know the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors yourself. So sin, if we really boiled it down, sin is the failure to love God with all your being and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, of course, in the beginning, Adam and Eve, we know, were sinless. They were able to love God with all their being. They were able to love their neighbor or the neighbors that were to come as themselves. But we also know that they were able to sin. And of course, they did sin. And Adam and all of his posterity, according to Romans 5.12, were cursed with the curse of death. Now, most understand death as physical death and we understand that Scripture speaks of, a, of an eternal or second death, which is when one is cast away from the presence of the Lord in a place called hell, a lake of fire. We understand physical death. We understand that's the first death. The second death we understand as hell. But death also includes the notion of slavery. Romans 6, 7 says that all unbelievers are enslaved to sin. Now, listen, if you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I'm going to come back to that thought later in the sermon. But I want you to understand that the Bible says, whether you feel this or not, the Bible says that you as an unbeliever are enslaved to sin. We, before we came to Christ, were slaves to sin. And what is a slave? Well, a slave is a person that lacks freedom. A slave is completely under the control of someone else or something else. So sinners in Adam are, were, completely under sin's dominion. But all that changed when we believed in Jesus Christ, didn't it? All that changed. Jesus said this in John 8, 36. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, Jesus had challenged 
the Jews who had believed in him earlier in that passage, he had challenged their profession. And in effect, he said that though you've professed faith, you're not truly free because you are not abiding in his word. Abiding in his word is not some second-tier Christianity. It just means to believe and obey his word. Essentially, he said, you're not walking in obedience. In fact, what Jesus did in that passage was to lump these professing Jews, who you know by the end of chapter 8 would try to kill him, he lumped these professing Jews into the Ishmael camp, slaves of their sin, not free. And he concludes by saying, but if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Andreas Kostenberger, in his commentary in the book of John, says that Jesus has set us free, and he's commenting on verse 36, from both the guilt and the life-controlling power of sin. Jesus has set us free from both the guilt, that's sin's penalty, and the life-controlling power of sin, that's sin's power. So here's the million-dollar question. If you and I have been set free from sin's penalty, and we have, hallelujah, amen, and if we've also been set free from sin's power, and we have, hallelujah, amen, why do we continue to sin? Well, to answer that, I think we need to step back and get a better grasp on the nature of our redemption. Now, you probably have heard something like this. The Father promised redemption. The Son secured redemption through His death, burial, and resurrection. And the Spirit applies redemption to our hearts by faith. Have you heard something like that before? That little formula, the Father promised it, the Son secured or procured it, the, the, the Spirit applies it to our hearts by faith. Well, let me just add two more words to that. The Spirit applies it to our heart by faith in stages, right? We're on the installment plan, aren't we? Yes, sin's penalty has already been forgiven. And since power has already been broken, Scripture's clear on that, Romans 6, 7, 8, Galatians 5, but sin's presence has not yet been vanquished, has it? All we have to do is interview your spouse to learn that, right? Or we could just go down to the nursery and turn on the recorder, and we would see, yeah, sin's presence has not been vanquished, that's for sure. We know that because we still constantly struggle with sin, don't we? I mean, Romans 8.23 says we groan for sin's removal, right? We are groaning, we are waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We know that because the Scriptures tell us to mortify sin in Colossians 3.5, and, and believers are characterized as those who put sin to death in Romans chapter 8. We know that we struggle with sin because there's warning passages all over the Scriptures, aren't there? Like the whole book of Hebrews, which is warning us to not fall away from the faith. We know sin's presence is real. We also know it because the Bible says that our vision is blurred. You know, I know something about blurry vision. Several years ago, I was 
on my way to a staff meeting at Christ Memorial Church, and I lost the vision in my left eye. Uh, actually, it, it kind of was like someone took some white out. I know you younger folk don't even know what that is, but before there was computers, you had to use whiteout on your typewriter, and it felt like someone just took a, a whiteout brush and just brushed it right across my, right across my eye, and I couldn't see well. Turned out my retina had torn, and then about two months later, I had a detached retina of the worst kind. And when they went into surgery, they said, we're not guaranteeing anything. You may come out blind. We'll do the best we can. Now, God was gracious. It's not perfect. And in fact, one of the consequences of the surgery, uh, unintended consequence, is that I now have double vision. Now, that's really wonderful for a preacher because now I get to see a throng twice the size <laughs> that I would normally be able to see. Now, when I put my glasses on, they've been able to do stuff with the lenses, so it forces my eyes back into alignment, and I just unfortunately only see one of you. Um, my vision's not right. It's, it's messed up. And our vision is, is messed up spiritually, isn't it? I mean, unbelievers, the Bible describes them as being blind. They can't see. The Scriptures say that we practice evil because we can't see God. That's what it says in 1 John 3 and 3 John 11. But even after we're saved, do we see clearly? No, we see through a glass darkly. We see through a mirror dimly, 1 Corinthians 13, 12. The reason that we're still sinning is because we're not like Christ yet. And we won't be like Christ until when? Until we see Him as He is, 1 John 3. Then we will be like Him. Then we will be perfectly conformed to Him. Our vision will finally be clear. So we struggle with sin. Sin's presence has not yet been vanquished. If I could borrow an analogy from a theologian named Greg Beale, it is already D-Day, but it's not yet V-E-Day, victory in Europe. You know D-Day. You know World War II. You know what happened on D-Day. Before D-Day, victory hung in the balance in World War II. But that successful landing of the Allied forces on June 6, 1944, on the beaches of Normandy changed everything. Now, after D-Day, the fighting was most bitter. Some of you remember the Battle of the Bulge, a very bitter fight. But it was just a matter of time, wasn't it? Victory was assured. Victory in Europe day was just around the corner, less than a year away. Now, by analogy, you and I, salvifically speaking, have already experienced the D-Day of our salvation. Since penalty's been forgiven, since power's been broken, but we're not yet home. Sin has not yet been vanquished. Our bitter fight with sin continues, but victory is assured. V-E day, when Christ returns, when we see him face to face, is just around the corner. Okay, so since power's been broken, 
But there are a couple of passages that seem to teach, as Calvin puts it, a sort of half-freedom, as if sin's power is only partially broken. Well, what do we do with those passages? Well, let's look at a couple of them. The first, perhaps the most controversial, Romans chapter 7. Would you turn with me to Romans 7? I know you were thinking, are we ever going to look at the Bible today? Yes. Romans chapter 7. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. At the head of Paul's epistles in our English Bibles. Let me pick it up in verse 12. I'll read through verse 17, just part of the passage. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not know, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not want, I do, I, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Let me stop there. Now according to Romans 6 through 8, those three chapters, believers are no longer slaves to sin, but are slaves to righteousness. Romans 8, 2 says that the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now by contrast, the Roman southern man here is self-described as being sold under sin. Verse 14. A one famous commentator who actually takes Romans 7, 15 to 25 to be a believer says this about that phrase sold under sin in verse 14. He said, it is to be so entirely controlled by the power of sin that the whole mind, the whole heart, and all of our actions are under its influence. Now, I'd like to suggest to you that that describes an unbeliever, somebody who is controlled by the power of sin. The Roman southern man, therefore, is an unbeliever. He's still enslaved to his sin. And let me tell you what it really boils down to. Here's the reason. If you're looking at that passage and you're saying, Wes, I've never heard it taught that way. I've always heard it taught as a believer. Let me tell you why it's not a believer. Go back with me to Romans 7 verse 5. And this is helpful because this passage can erode your confidence that you can walk in newness of life. It can undermine your confidence that the Spirit of God is able to uh, enable you to obey the great commandments. Romans chapter 7, let me pick it up in verse 5. Paul says this, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now you know what that sounds like? That sounds like an unholy partnership, doesn't it? It sounds like the law was somehow complicit in our sin and death. And Paul 
embarks, starting in verse 7, on, a, on a, uh, uh, an exercise to exonerate the law from this attack, that the law somehow contributed to our sin. And he makes really one point in this whole passage. It's to show that it was sin, not the law, that caused his death as an unbeliever. He's answering a simple question. What caused my death? Was it the law? No. Was it sin? Yes. And what is death? My death as an unbeliever. Paul is describing what calls his condemnation. So you see Romans 7, 13 to 25 has nothing to do with believers and therefore must not undermine your confidence. You're not the Romans 7 person if you're a believer. Yes, you struggle with sin, but you're not a slave to it. That's the difference. Now there's an objection that's often brought, and that's from verse 22 in Romans 7 where it says that this person, who I'm saying is an unbeliever, delights in the law in his inner man. What do we do with that? Traditional theology says that unbelievers cannot delight in the law in their inner man. Well, my answer is that the Old Testament unbelievers, that entire Exodus generation, which Hebrews 3 and 4 says were lost, only Caleb and Joshua came into the promised land. The rest fell in the wilderness because of their unbelief. That very generation said that they were eager to obey the law. In fact, one commentator says this. He says, it was not a part, but the whole of the people who promised in Exodus 19.8 obedience to God's covenant. And their reply was unreserved, declaring that they would do whatsoever God required. And we see that over and over again with the covenant renewals in the, New Te- in the Old Testament. Unbelievers, clearly unbelievers, wanting to do the, the will of God, but unable to do it because of total depravity. They're not free. So unbelievers can delight in God's law. Now that's the first text that confuses the scope of our freedom. Can you hang in there for one more? I know that we're getting into some tall weeds with that. Let's try one more. Galatians chapter 5. Grant said I had to be done by 1 o'clock. Um, so I said I was sure I could be done by 12.30. So uh, Galatians chapter 5. Let me pick it up in verse 13. I should have noticed how prevalent the theme of freedom is in all of these passages. Verse 13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law." If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Galatians 5.18 says, those led by the Spirit are not under the law. And we know from Romans 6.14, those who are not under the law are under grace. Those who are led by the Spirit are under grace. Sin has no dominion over them. Romans 8.14 says that those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. You see, under grace, sons of God, 
Believers, by definition, are those who are led by the Spirit. Every single believer is led by the Spirit. That's the sphere in which we live. Now, that's not perfection. We're still sinning. But our sphere, our orientation, is now spiritual. We're led by the Spirit. Romans 8, 9, Romans 8, 9 helps us with that. Uh, when it says you're not in the flesh but in the Spirit, you're not in the flesh but in the Spirit if what? Who's in the Spirit? If the Spirit dwells within you. Now, are there any Christians that don't have the Spirit? Do you believe that there's a single Christian that does not have the Spirit of God dwelling in him? Paul says you're not in the flesh but in the Spirit if the Spirit of God dwells in them. He then goes on to say if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he doesn't belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit of God. You are in the Spirit. And to be in the Spirit is the same as to be led by the Spirit, is the same as to mind the things of the Spirit, is the same to walk by the Spirit, and therefore all believers walk by the Spirit. It's the realm in which we live. That's not perfectionism. That's the dimension in which we exist. We are in the Spirit people. We are not in the flesh people. That changed when the Son set us free. Again, though, there's a tension. Here's the tension. If believers, by definition, walk by the Spirit, then why does Paul command believers to walk by the Spirit in Galatians 5.16? What's going on there, Mr. Smarty Pants? Well, here's what I think is going on. Paul is not talking to healthy Christians in Galatians. As Augustine says in the only full commentary that he wrote on the book of Galatians, as he says, Paul is talking to gospel deserters, chapter 1, to near apostates, chapter 4, to those who are bewitched, chapter 3, to those who are on the cusp of falling away, in danger of being severed from Christ and falling from grace via their new justification system by law. And therefore, those type of people need to be exhorted to come back to the realm of the Spirit because they are embracing the realm of the flesh. They're being exhorted to come back to faith because they're embracing works. That's what's going on in Galatians chapter 5. Those folk are living as if they were unbelieving slaves, and maybe they actually are. Paul actually says in Galatians chapter 4, I fear for you that perhaps I've labored over you in vain. He's fearful that they're not even Christians. And he's wooing them back to the freedom of gospel grace. That's what he's doing. So here's the upshot, beloved. We struggle with sin. You and I as Christians, we struggle with sin. Again, just ask my wife. You know, she threatens me from time to time that she's going to write a book if I don't get in line. She threatens to go to the elders. I mean, she's got me right under her thumb. I'm a sinner. I get that. But I struggle with sin. I'm not a slave to sin. 
like the Roman seven man, or perhaps like the Galatian near apostates. So who are we already? Who, who are you? What's your identity? What do you identify with? Well, first of all, we are members of the New Covenant community. That was the promise that Jeremiah 31 made, wasn't it? That he would give us a new covenant. It's a covenant sealed in Christ's blood. And thus we have a new identity, don't we? But here's the question. How did you become a member of this new covenant community? Well, when you were awakened by God's spirit, don't you love that, that hymn, Long my imprisoned spirit laid, and right before the beginning of the course, thine eye diffused a quickening ray? Yes. When we were awakened by God's Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, he turned our hearts to faith, and we received the Spirit. And what did that Spirit do? He made us a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Who are you, dear beloved? You are a new creature. I know that word creature is kind of creepy. You are a new person. You're a new person. You're, you're part of the new creation. That's who you are. That's who you really are. That's not just a, a hopeful idea. That's actually happened. You have become a new creation. And how did the Spirit do it? How did He make you new? He made you new by giving you a new heart. That was what was promised in Ezekiel 36, wasn't it? A new heart will I give you, and I will put my spirit within you. He took out the heart of stone, and he gave you a heart of flesh. And you know what he did to do that? This is a little, I'm getting a, a little delicate here, but it's in the Bible. That's what I used to say to our folk. I'm sorry, but it's in the Bible. So I'm going to talk about it because it's in the Bible. The Bible talks about our foreskin of sin, doesn't it? That's what controlled our hearts. It covered our hearts. It controlled our hearts. And what does the Spirit do? What did circumcision in the flesh point to in the Old Testament? It pointed to the circumcision of the heart which the Israelites were continually commanded to do. Circumcise your heart. Circumcise your heart. When we believe in Jesus Christ, the Spirit comes in and He circumcises that foreskin of sin, makes us a new creature. And not only that, with this new heart He's given us, He writes the law of God on it. What does that mean, that He writes the law of God on our heart? It's no longer on tablets of stone. It's now on tablets of the human heart. What does that mean? That means He's empowered us to obey it. That was the problem with the first covenant, right? Was there anything wrong with the law itself? No. The law is holy and righteous and good. What was the problem with, with the Mosaic Covenant? There was no enablement, was there? It was written on stone tablets. It didn't interface with humanity. So God comes along in the New Covenant. The Spirit writes the new covenant, he writes the law on our hearts. That's the language of ability. That's the language of enablement. The heart is set free from sin's enslaving power. Not its presence. No, no. But its enslaving power. For sin has been circumcised from our hearts and the law has been inscribed in its place. 
And thus by virtue of the new covenant in Christ's blood, those who believe have a brand new identity. We are new creations by virtue of a new spirit who has given us a new heart, freed from sin's dominion and empowered to walk in newness of life. Now that ought to boost your confidence this morning. That ought to strengthen your resolve to go out and walk according to that spirit. You see, believers, the moment they believe, are transformed and are free to be transformed. The moment you believe, you're a new creation and you're free to become perfected in that new creation mold. You're free to be transformed. And here's the question. How do you progress? How do you move forward in holiness? How do you participate successfully in sanctification? What's the pathway to true Christ-likeness? Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to pick it up in verse 15. It says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, over the Jews' hearts, the unbelieving Jews' hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Spirit, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You know, I love that word freedom. There is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's right. You see, formerly the gospel was veiled to us. It was shrouded in darkness. As we saw earlier in 3 John, we did evil because, as 3 John says, we had not seen 
God. We were blind. We were children of darkness. But God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what he's done. Already we've been set free to see our great triune God in the face of Jesus Christ. Though admittedly we are looking through a glass darkly still. And this is the first installment, if you will, of that beatific vision. It's the first installment. We've already received the first installment of the beatific vision. Charles Hodge, the great Princeton theologian, said this regarding our ability to behold the glory of the Lord with unveiled face. He said this, and I quote, this vision is beatific. That is, it beautifies. It transforms the soul into the divine image, transfusing into it the divine life so that it is filled with the fullness of God. Yes. You see, brothers and sisters, as we behold Jesus Christ, we are transformed into his beautiful image from one degree of glory to another. So how do we behold him? Well, I think you would agree with me that we can behold him in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. We can behold him in the church. As amazing as it is, if you know Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ through his spirit indwells you. So when I look at you, amazingly, when you look at me, you can see something of Jesus Christ. Of course, most of all, we behold him through his word which presents to us his death, burial, and resurrection. You see, as we hear the gospel preached, and as we see it displayed through the Lord's table, we behold our beautiful Savior and are transformed into his image from glory to glory. That's the process. We behold and we're transformed. We behold and we're transformed. By the way, this is why our weekly gathering is so important. It's so critical It's the primary venue through the preached word. That's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 4. It's the primary venue where you behold Christ. I'm not dismissing quiet times. I'm certainly not dismissing reading, memorizing, studying, meditating on Christ in Scripture. For all of Scripture points to him. But it's in the preaching of the word. It's in the presentation of the ordinances that we best see Christ. And as we behold Christ, his beauty is manifested in at least three ways. Three things that were true of him. His praising, his presenting, and his praying. You see, as that beauty becomes our beauty, as his beauty is transfused into our souls, we begin to express those three traits more excitedly, more enthusiastically. Let's look at those quickly as we close. First of all, Christ's praising. Hebrews 2.12, which is quoting Psalm 22.22, you don't need to turn there, refers to Jesus Christ as the one who will sing God's praise in the midst of the congregation. Do you know that? Jesus Christ is a singer. 
And he's singing God's praise in the midst of the heavenly congregation right now. Now, why is he doing that, by the way? Because God delivered him from death. He prayed that God would deliver him from death. He prayed that God would resurrect him. Hebrews 5 says that. And God did it. And Jesus is the worship leader, if you will, in heaven right now. Yes, he is being worshiped to be sure, but he's also leading the worship among the heavenly hosts where hands are being raised, hallelujahs are being sung, the 24 elders, they're on their faces day and night worshiping and praising around the throne. The governor is off and Jesus is leading the way. And so too it must be with us. You see, to truly behold the triune God, the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ is to become an uninhibited worshiper. Does that phrase scare you? It scares me. I, I don't like the idea. You know, I like to keep my arms right here. This is where they were meant to be. They weren't meant to be like this until you get saved. Then they're meant to be like this, not like this. I'm not taking umbrage with you if you don't raise your arms during the singing. My wife never raises her arms during the singing. She's got a cup of coffee in her hand, as a matter of fact. How unspiritual is that? <laughs> She's not here, so I'm not going to get in any trouble for that comment. <clears throat> but I think I'm, you know I'm talking about the heart. So whether you do this or not, it ought to be happening here. It ought to be happening here. When you behold the triune God, you can't help but offer up continually, as Hebrews 13, 15 says, a sacrifice of praise to God, which is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. You're just continually doing that. You know, I was looking at Psalm 146 today. I know we're running a little short here, but my goodness, this is the punchline. Listen to what it says. These are the, these are the hallelujah psalms. That's because each one of these psalms from 146 to 50 starts with hallelujah and ends with hallelujah. Hallelujah is this Hebrew word, praise the Lord. Listen to Psalm 146. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes and the son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. When we're beholding the beauty of Christ, this is what should happen in our hearts. We become effusive praisers. That's what happens to us. And secondly, we become effective presenters. You see, beholding Christ manifests itself in presenting ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. That's what Jesus did, and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Hebrews 10, 7 says, he came, I come to do your will. That's right. He came to do his will. To behold Christ is to long to be like Christ, holy, obedient, walking by faith, not sight. And it results in us presenting our members, 
to God as instruments of righteousness. We're free to do that according to Romans 6, 12, and 13. Not as instruments of sin, but as instruments of righteousness, because sin no longer has dominion over us. You know, this is good news. You're no longer a slave to your emotions. You're no longer a slave to your past. I don't know what your pasts include. Perhaps some awful things. Mine does. You're no longer a slave even to those besetting sins that can so easily entangle you. You see, this is, this is a head game. If you believe you're still enslaved to those besetting sins, do you think you're going to make progress with regard to those sins? No way. No way. Or if, if you do, it's going to be very incremental. The Son has made you free from sin's power. You're free indeed to love God. You're free indeed to love your neighbor in Christ, not perfectly, but increasingly. Progress is the name of the game. Finally, praying, or perhaps better groaning, is part of the beauty of Christ. You know, it says that our Savior prayed while he was on earth. We have at least three times that the Scriptures record he prayed through the night. Luke 5.16 says that he often withdrew to the wilderness to pray. And what did he pray for? He prayed for the consummation. He prayed for the resurrection from the dead. Hebrews 5.7 says that in the days of his flesh he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Jesus, the sinless Savior, groaned for deliverance from the grave. And so must we. You know, though we've been freed to see him with eyes of faith, we've not yet seen him face to face. It's only then that we'll be like him. And thus, if we're to be conformed to his image, we must groan. Like creation groans, Romans 8. Like the Holy Spirit groans, Romans 8. We must groan for our resurrection as Jesus cried and wept for his own resurrection. And we must beseech him for the day when sin and death shall be no more. Did you hear that? There's a day coming when sin and death will be no more. And as we behold Christ, we want Christ uh, we want to pray more fervently, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's right. We're praying for a future kingdom, aren't we? We're praying for a future time when his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? We're anticipating a day, beloved, when the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. We're looking forward. We're groaning for a day when this corruptible shall put on incorruption and this mortal shall put on immortality and the prophecy will finally come true. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, death, where is thy victory? Oh, beloved, assert your freedom to groan as Jesus groaned for glory for the final transformation 
into his beautiful image. Now in closing, I want to note, no doubt there are some here today that stand outside of Christ. You've not bowed the knee. You've certainly not received that indescribable gift of life everlasting. The Bible says that you're still a slave to your sin. Listen to me, friend. You're still a slave, and you'll remain a slave, cast off and cast out into a place of outer darkness where weeping and gnashing and suffering never end unless you take advantage of what's being offered to you. Because it need not stay that way. The Bible says if the Son shall make you free, if the Son shall make you free, you're not free right now, dear unbeliever, but if the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And so I say to you, come to Jesus. Embrace Jesus as your Savior. Let him make you free to walk in newness of life. There's nothing more beautiful. Brothers and sisters, you and I have already been set free, haven't we? To be sure, it's no walk in the park. Yes, we've already achieved D-Day victory, but final victory has not yet come, though it's assured. It's still a bitter fight with sin until victory finally appears in the coming of Jesus Christ. But you and I can fight confidently as new creations. You see, Satan is doomed. He knows it. Sin is nearly vanquished. Death is hanging on by a hair. And the wind of God's Spirit has already filled our sails and is pushing us forward to glory. The Son has set us free. So let us exercise that freedom to behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ, which transforms us into Christ, praising, effect, praising effusively, presenting effectively, and praying desperately until we finally see him face to face. Assert your already freedom in Christ. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace, your mercy. Thank you for the work of your Son. Thank you for the work of your Spirit in our souls. Father, let us move forward with confidence, not in pride, but in humble belief that you have done this already work that enables us to be transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.